Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages, inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. This week, our guest is Dr. Carmen Acevedo Butcher. She is the translator of an award-winning, and I should say extremely delicious, translation of the medieval text, The Cloud of Unknowing, and a recent translation of the writings of Brother Lawrence, about whom we will talk more in this conversation. She teaches in the writing programs at UC Berkeley. I'm talking with Carmen in part because a few years ago, I took a literal search into the deserts of Egypt, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan in search of a saint who may or may not have been literal herself. That saint's name is Mary of Egypt, and she probably lived in the 5th century and spent most of her life as a hermit in the wilderness of Jordan. Several years before I undertook this literal search, I tried another way of finding her, and that has led me to Carmen. I studied Greek with my father and then attempted to translate the life of Mary of Egypt, a 7th century Greek text, also with my father. I had never undertaken such an ambitious translation project. I felt like I was saying into the future, if I express it like this, will you see what I see? What if I say it like that? And it wasn't just meaning that I found myself trying to convey. I found myself asking, is this phrase or that phrase more likely to stir a reaction of love? When I encountered Carmen Butcher's work, I knew I had found a companion on this search, and today we're going to talk with her about translation. Welcome to In Search Of, Carmen. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be here. Carmen, I was drawn not only to your translation of The Cloud of Unknowing, but also to your translation philosophy, which you call translation as the practice of embodied mysticism. And I wonder if you could start by unpacking that philosophy for us. What, what does that mean to you? And why did you come across that particular way of phrasing your work? Well, it wasn't really, how can I say this? It wasn't many years of me thinking, what is my translation philosophy? <laughs> so it wasn't a done deal. It was more of a discovery. And it was done in community because I met with Broadleaf editor Lil Copan. And during the time when I was submitting the proposal for the Brother Lawrence translations, she said, so have you ever written up your translation philosophy? And I thought, my translation philosophy? No, I hadn't even thought of it in that way. But of course, I love the fact that Translation means to carry across, and philosophy means love of wisdom. So I sat down and thought, what will I write? And two hours later, I had written it. And so I didn't know I had been thinking about it, and probably I would never have written it down if I hadn't been asked about it. Because when you talk about, in your introduction, that was so excellent, about the textures and the relationships and how can I help people know more about love? And for me, I also am always thinking about peace. How can I make all of this come into play? It's like very elaborate Sudoku. I don't do Sudoku, but it's like 
three-dimensional chess. It's really a lot like what Kate Briggs talks about in this little art, which I also didn't know about until after I had translated it. So I'm just thankful to be in a community where I have friends and readers who are also friends I haven't met yet, who ask me questions and allow me to be in dialogue with these older texts. Because if there's anything I know, it's that I'm always on the lookout for myself. How can I become better friends with me? And also, how can I make a difference for the common good and help other people have better lives in some small way? Can you take us a little bit into the experience of translation as embodied mysticism? So help us imagine you in front of a text and what you do to enter into this kind of relationship with it that you call embodied mysticism. That is a wonderful question. Often the first thing I do is say a very short prayer of please help me. And then I marshal the different resources I need. So for Brother Lawrence, I wasn't sure at first if I could translate Brother Lawrence because I wanted to make sure that even though I had read pieces of him before, I wanted to make sure that what he was writing about was what I thought would be helpful. And so I started, first of all, by going to the 1692 text and it's free at the library, National Library of France online. And I started typing it, oh. literally typing it so I could feel it in my fingers. And I started looking at it. I went through all of it. I leafed through it as you do digitally. And it has these beautiful different decorations, very late 17th century France. And then I started translating. A lot of people I know, Lydia Davis and others who are master translators talk about reading the entire work first or doing all of the research first. But for this text, I was led to translate it as I went. And so that's what I did. And so I discovered the text. I wanted to let the text actually have a one-on-one -on -one dialogue with me. And then I have about 30 tabs open at once. <laughs> and during the time that I'm doing it, I'm also ordering books. So I'm ordering every single solid translation ever of Brother Lawrence. So I have a stack of those. And then I'm ordering a printed out copy of the 1692 version so I can mark in it. And while I'm translating, I'm seeing how everybody else has translated this sometimes. Sometimes I'm translating it first myself, but I'm actually looking at every word, every letter, so much to the point that I discovered things like the word F-O-Y is in the text and it's a scribal oops, oopsie thing. Uh, those of us who have autocorrect sympathize. So it's F-O-Y in the text and it should be F-O-I for faith. And some of the translators translated as joy because there's also the long S in the text that looks like an F. I'm used to all of those because as I like to tell my students at UC Berkeley, I'm a nerd. So those kinds of old scripts, I understand. And I know where to look when I don't understand it. But I'll have 30 tabs open 
with several dictionaries, like the Collins French to English Dictionary, and also the Lingui. So sometimes there are colloquialisms, and then you have to think, but this is several centuries before now. So I found some 1500 and 1600 and 1700 French dictionaries. I mean, it's really a gourmet. You talked about delicious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, I, it's, a, it's a really gourmet event, quite literally. And I end up, what I did was I had to make, because uh, I knew to myself that there would come a time when my plug on my computer would get pulled out and everything might be lost. So I made a document of links that had all of the different dictionaries and the different texts so that I could go through them. And I just, and I had them in order. So I got used to, I had a certain muscle memory that the Collins dictionary is here and 10 down is where I have this 16th century dictionary. And then even with all of those resources, one of the joys is, sometimes spending several days on one line or one word. And that to me is a joy because I'm not going to the text thinking I know, but I'm going with some kenosis. And I'm going as a human being who's breathing. And when you talk about embodied, I am somebody who is not naturally a calm person or even a peaceful person. And am someone who's in great need of healing. And over time, I have practiced without knowing it, a kind of presence, the practice of the presence. So as I am actually seeing the practice of the presence, like at such an intimate level, I'm seeing, oh my girl, this is what you do. Hmm. Exactly. And so it was a really very, I'm very thankful for the experience. I'm, I'm very thankful a book is coming out of it, but I'm first thankful for the experience of being able to see that and to see that people have down through the centuries been trying to achieve this peace. And one of the other things that I do while I'm translating is try to find out more about the history. And you come across people doing amazing work I didn't know there was a little ice age in during this time and they had floods in Paris. So very many resonances between now and then. And the other part of embodied is the fact that I'm somebody who teaches. I have students who are all different backgrounds and I'm constantly thinking, how does this make a difference to them? because a lot of them have low socioeconomic backgrounds, undocumented parents, and real difficulties. So I'm always trying to think, how can this make a difference, this translation in a real way? That really seems to take us directly to Brother Lawrence himself. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who he was and then why you were drawn to creating this new translation of his work. First of all, because his work has been in publication for over 300 years, and that, as you know, is pretty impressive. So what keeps it coming back, and why are people so drawn to it? I really like the fact, I, I didn't really notice anybody had quite looked at him this way before, 
but not Brother Lawrence is an icon, but Nicholas Herman. Who was Nicholas Herman, who later became Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection? And he was a really confused individual. And I really like genuine, confused individuals who are doing their best because I relate to that. <laughs> so he didn't have a privileged background. He joined, well, he tried many different things. I've worked at a lot of different places, Home Depot as a cashier. I've worked at a furniture company as a secretary. I've typed books for professors. I've swept granny fried chicken parking lot before I went to college to make money to be able to apply to go to college and cooked hash browns and tater tots. And he had a similar background. He tried being a valet. Then he decided to go into the army. And there's a lot of, we don't know a lot about what he did in the army, but he does suggest that he either saw things or possibly participated in things that really shook him. And we do know that he was taken as a prisoner of war during one of the skirmishes. And he just told them, you can do what you want to do, but they accused him of being a spy. And he said, you can do what you want, but I'm not a spy. And because he had such a force of honesty and character, they let him go. And he even tried being a hermit. I mean, he is not somebody who just appeared one day and said, put his pointy finger and his thumb together and went, I am the guru. He really bungled around. And then during the war, he was injured and he had a limp ever after. He had a pretty serious injury. I just love him because don't we all have things we don't like to do or we don't feel good at? He didn't like, when, when he did join, actually, when he did become a friar as a lay brother, sometimes he had to go and purchase the wine and do some other business things. And he just said he did not like that, but God would help him. And he talks about how it was so hard to get around with the markets and the boats and look at different wares and how he had to scoot around in a different way. He just is very down to earth. He is not educated. He's not Dr. Nicholas Herman. He is so genuine. But the thing is, I wanted to know, was he, how can we put this? He's just so smart. When you read his writing, he is so very smart. But back in his day, he would not have been, he would have been seen as a real sort of savant or something. But when you look at his writing, you think it's like most things. It doesn't matter if he was educated. He was so smart. His writing is very intelligent. He can make a sentence go on for days. It's <laughs> very, it's, I must say it's very perplexing sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that, but <laughs> It's very Faulknerian in a way sometimes. And people recognized his goodness. And I really like the fact that then we have Joseph Flaubert, who, his friend, who was part of the established church, who wanted to preserve his writings. People said, I love the fact that it came about, people were saying, can we see some of Brother Lawrence's letters or writings? Because he had written some letters. And so after his death, Flaubert goes and looks and sees and finds some, but we don't have everything. 
that's also what makes it special is that it was he didn't have a tenured position he didn't publish in fact he often said when he would write things down it just didn't match the beauty of god in his head or the joy and he would tear it up i think ow <laughs> i really would really like to see those but never mind so i think what i love most about brother lawrence is that he is down to earth and he is not self-conscious and that to me speaks a lot he does talk about having this moment with the tree where he sees in the winter the tree doesn't have leaves on it and in that moment he had a flash of insight like thomas merton on the street corner in kentucky and he had this momentary thought of wow god loves me and god is real and that never diminished for him and then he talks about my favorite part of his writing is when he talks about working in the kitchen that's the part of brother lawrence that i know talk a little bit about that that is my favorite part all of my favorite people all of them are always juggling three thousand things and they never ever make you feel like they are and so he talks about how sometimes people would be asking him in the kitchen for something and he'd be like maybe cooking omelets for all the friars over a hundred friars i mean that's a lot of omelets he talks about people would be asking him questions he'd be doing things in the kitchen and that was also when he practiced the presence of god he brings it into everything when you're really busy those are the times to really practice what you're trying to practice. And for me, it was interesting because we're in a pandemic and all of my students are under great stress. So while I'm translating and thinking of Brother Lawrence, I'm myself trying to make a safe space for my students whose families are going through a lot. And I really enjoyed being able to practice the presence for those because I really translated the bulk of the material in 600 hours over two months. It helps me to have a long period of looking at something like 10 hours every day. And I'm doing other things too, but it really helps to have a kind of like when birds get up in the air and they start, they don't have to flap anymore. They're just on the thermals, mm, yeah. that kind of thinking. And my students were, their parents were losing jobs. People were sick and the whole time I was translating, I was able to have this unusual kind of closeness in practicing the presence of God. And then in September, my husband lost his job. Mm. And I thought to myself, well, this is more grist for the mill, Carmen. It's all well and good when you're translating and, and it's such a joy. And now how do you stay real and loving and calm and try to support the whole family. I just find that his way of practicing the presence does actually work in all circumstances. And I know of no other time like this present inflection point where we more need a God of love. And that was the other thing in letting the documents speak to me, the maxims, the letters, the eulogy 
So what both Brother Lawrence wrote and what Flaubert wrote, I was able to see that the main message is God is love. That's it. You are listening to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century. You'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of Christian Century magazine. Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just $19.95. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. That's christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. back up a little bit and tell us about how you came to be a translator. You talked a little bit about all of these different vocations, or maybe they weren't vocations, they were things that you had to do to get through. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to your first work of translating and and why it spoke to you. I was a master's degree student at the University of Georgia and teaching assistant. And one day a professor said, oh, look, I have this book on Alfrich of Innisham. You might want to take a look at some of his sermons. And I had never heard of Alfrich of Innisham. And so I looked at his sermons, and they were beautiful. So really and truly, I am just a sucker for beautiful language. And it was also that Alfrich wrote about God's mercy. One of his lines that I didn't translate, it wasn't in the ones I translated, but he's an old English 10th century Benedictine monk. And he says in one of his sermons, you don't know when somebody dies, if in the last few seconds of their life, they turned to God and they made peace with God and God forgave them. So don't judge anybody's journey, he says. It's not one of his most famous uh, known passages, but I look for those. His corpus of work is really all about love. And so I translated this old English because I studied German in Heidelberg and met one of my favorite people, Mother Bush back then. And so translating Old English is so like German that it reminded me of all my talk about embodied, all of my happy memories and love for my friends in Germany. And that then I started in on the PhD and I needed to have something nobody had done before. And one thing nobody had done before was translate 17 of these sermons and Alfrich's prose is some of the most beautiful I've ever read. I'm really sorry it's in Old English because it's just absolutely, it's poetic prose. It's absolutely beautiful. And so part of it for me is the beauty and the rhythm. It's like when you read James Baldwin, you know it's James Baldwin. The rhythm of it. Then something pulled me towards the cloud of unknowing. I ran into it during some really difficult days in graduate school. And it just was so beautiful. It just reached out to me because one of the things I was struggling with was being raised with punitive theology and mostly fear. One of the things that the medieval women mystics that I read in graduate school and the cloud of unknowing, they all had this peace to them and they had God is love and being able to live with a text in middle English, like the cloud or old English, like Alfrich is really healing to me. I must admit 
there's a selfish aspect of it that it really makes me feel alive and peaceful and it's healing to me to translate. So can I ask just really quickly, I don't know quite how to ask this, but is there a way that that healing quality is in the language and is you and, and translation is a way of passing it from the text into your own experience? Well, I couldn't say it better than that. That's exactly, that echoes exactly my experience because Alfrich and the Clouds Anonymous are two of the best writers I have ever read. And then, well, can I sing a song? Would sure. that be okay? So to me, this will sum it up. For years, I've been singing this one song. It's Cabman's Hymn. And I made up the tune to it since they didn't have recorders back in 680 or 700. And it's all about, it's really the first recorded Christian hymn in praise of God in English, in English, I should say. And I actually sing this song for no reason at odd different times. And I made a tune up to, because it's beautiful and it means thank you, God, for the beauty of your creation. And so it takes a minute. Wonderful. Hey, add a ship, earthen, vernum, half unto Rofa, Hollid ship pond, Thamid and yet monk is where the chay after her tail the fear unfolden. Freya almishtish, Freya almishtish, Freya almishtish. And to me, that is the marriage of words and thought of praising God. And somehow that cabman's hymn and Alfrich and the cloud and brother Lawrence too. Although brother Lawrence is a totally different because the, the writing in French in 1692 is different, but it's beautiful. How can you not think French is beautiful? In fact, that's one of the things I almost would like to put on every page of the translation of brother Lawrence. I wish people could hear it without the glottal stops that we have in English, the way French rolls along like a river of beautiful sound. So yeah, Brother Lawrence is beautiful too. It's and just a totally different thing. I love that idea of the way that the words for love in Brother Lawrence are so open, are so open-ended that yes. you can kind of flow with them. Yes. But yes. I also loved in Cadman's hymn, I think my favorite moment of your singing was thunk. <laughs> Which I just felt as a as a kind of falling into place as if something had just shifted and then it sunk in that's good that's good you know that song this is my father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings around me rings yeah. the music of the spheres so that is like the old English version of that song being thankful for creation and you're right that thunk is a good that's a good way of thinking about it I don't know. Yeah. I, I was rolling with it and I was listening deeply, but then all of a sudden the thunk like woke me up. I love the way that language can do that. 
And okay. you, in some of your writing about this, you, you wrote that the best words draw us together in community. And I wonder yes. what you mean by that. And also even more than what you mean by it, what are some examples of that? That's a really good question because I have always thought that when you say, for example, that someone is bound to a wheelchair, that is not really person first language. This has been on my mind a lot lately because of course, Brother Lawrence was someone who lived with a disability. People don't point that out very much, but to me, that's huge. If we say a person uses a wheelchair or if we instead ask the person who is in a wheelchair, how would you prefer that I refer to you? I teach a course at UC Berkeley on cross-cultural conversations. And often I will ask my students, so how do you identify? And they write an auto-ethnographic essay in which they need to tell us what their cultural background is and also how do they plan to use their unique perspective culturally and their experiences to contribute to the common good. Often a student will say to me, I'm not sure how I identify. I've never thought about this before. And I say, great, let's think about it. And sometimes students will say, I wonder, do I want to say that I'm black or African American? And often when I'm talking with students and trying to help them to think about what they are wanting to say, I will ask, do you prefer to be called indigenous or would an indigenous person, or do you have a certain tribal name you would rather use? So I'm not saying we have a list, but I'm thinking that, for example, there's a difference between saying, this is my adopted child, and this is my son or daughter whom I adopted. If we could just think about language with empathy. So in other words, first of all, I learned how to pronounce my students' names. So that would be, it would start with pronunciation. And sometimes my mouth can't make the sounds. That's not an excuse for not trying and for not working on it. I just know this from having taught in Korea, when my tutor would sometimes say, it's this way, and I just couldn't quite get it. And I think these kinds of uses of language, pronouns, are very, very important. Honoring someone's voice and essence as much as we can. So let's talk about that in relation to these ancient texts, because you've said something really interesting about trying to discern as a translator what of old and we might even use the word sinful or, or hurtful language, we should carry forward and what do we leave behind and how do we handle that in our translations? And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit in, in using this empathetic, this listening forward as well as listening backward that you're describing and you're translating. How do you handle that in relation to language in the texts that we might consider to be insensitive today, or we might consider to be problematic. How do you handle that? I handle it definitely on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I, I think I'm a bit like Dolly Parton in this way. I'm translating for everybody. She says she's singing for everybody. I'm trying to translate for everybody. 
because if God is love, what does that really mean? That always makes me feel really humbled because that is a challenge. If I can even just try to pose that question as I'm translating, if God is love. And while I'm translating, I have my students in the back of my mind, my family, my friends, and I have interactions. And my students have all manner of backgrounds. What does it mean if God is love to my students? So sometimes when I'm translating a text, even Brother Lawrence, and I see how translators have taken a word in French like TOUS for all people, and they've changed it to men or to Christians, and the text actually says all people, I think, let's go with all. And historically, women have felt, or some women have, felt outside the power structure of the church or outside the care of the church or outside the respect in some ways. And when I translate, I'm thinking about everybody. And if God is love, what does that mean? When we look at a text like Brother Lawrence, we see that there's actually been some things left out that could have been written in. For example, Bonte. Brother Lawrence has got so many references to God as kind and love and God as a ruler who will not punish us, who loves us. And so when I see those texts, instead of just translating them as good versus evil, God is good, mm. I see Bonte as God is kind. And instead of evil, some of the words used for evil in other translations can also mean harm done to others. Mm. There is a new current afoot, and I think God is love, needs to expand so that, you know how Jesus says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. When I was translating Brother Lawrence, I felt with great respect because everybody who translates Brother Lawrence loves God and Brother Lawrence. That's a fact. I can see it. But I felt that there were some ways that the text allowed to open up for more love so that the new wine of God's love, especially these days, not be put in the old wineskin of maybe 20th century theology, which we're still living with. I think 21st century theology can be much, much more inclusive and much more caring of the poor. That is something that is on my mind a lot. I guess the reason I'm so passionate about this is I could sit for hours and talk about my students. Mm. And many of them have overcome so many difficulties that were systemic. And so I think if God is love, then when I translate, I need to re remember that that needs to include everybody. There's an amazing thing that your philosophy of translation opens up for me, which is a, a different kind of listening that is embodied. So for example, when you say that there's a difference between God is good and God is kind, the first thing I find myself wanting to do is to attend to that in a physical way. 
do I hear God is good differently than I hear God is kind? And, and the reality is I do. I hear them as one has a kind of end, a, an end point to it. It is a statement of truth and it's over. God is good. And like you said, hiding there is, there is also evil or there's something that's called bad. But God is kind opens up something. It's a, it's, there's a freeing something that happens when you listen in that kind of way. And it's really profound. What I found myself after reading you, I went back over my translation of Mary of Egypt and I looked for those places where maybe I had said to myself, well, you know, that's kind of what the text says and it'd be the most literal of the translations. But I found myself going back over and listening again to see if I could hear where love was working because I knew that love had worked in that text and I knew it had worked on me. So I knew it was there, but I'm not sure that when I was translating, I was always as aware I was tuned in to the love of the text as much. And so I went back and I listened differently. And one thing I ended up doing is on a case by case basis, I ended up taking the word Lord out and putting Holy One in several instances, and then going back to read again and again the text to see if I'd see if I was missing something or, or if the reader would miss the presence of this very traditional word. And what I found was that the words Holy One opened things. They released something that I really liked and I really wanted the reader to have in Mary of Egypt's story. I wanted to have access to that profound complexity of the divine, for example, that's non-binary and non-gendered because for Mary of Egypt, so much of her religious teaching and training came from a female interlocutor, a female guide that she had. And so anyway, some of your work opened that up for me to listen profoundly and differently than I had before. I love that. I mean, I absolutely love that because one of the places that for sure, for me, Lord, is that's a, that changing that to Holy One, that's profound. I think it does allow more love in. And it reminds me what you just said, the way I was raised was in a, a church where it was very right versus wrong. And that definitely, I had a board in my mind, Amy, where <laughs> if I said, I have that One board. Th- I have. <laughs> I did have to, I have to consciously ask them to leave. But anyway, sorry. Tell, them, tell our listeners about this board. No. And I remember, like, how old was I? I really hadn't been out in the world long enough at eight years old <laughs> to to have really done anything morally worth noting <laughs> and having sincere atonement for yes. And but in my mind, I remember the day that I came home from church and in my head, I still see it, this board raised up and it had like little checks and stars and X's, big black X's. Mm. And there would be, as I would live along my day, it'd be like big black X, big black X, because I was that kid. And no matter how hard I tried, there were a lot of black X's and it's simply not love and it's not grace. Fortunately, I have people in my life who did and do love me and you learn about second chances and third chances and you learn about not being perfect and still second chances <laughs> thank yeah. goodness for second chances and i wonder if there's anything that in your translation of brother lawrence that you think will surprise readers that, that will just throw them off 
<laughs> that you could talk about a little bit? I think, I hope first of all, that they think it is very accessible. I hope my students want to read it as much and are helped and find some peace and love in it as much as the highest theologian or some Carmelite friar. And I think what may surprise people is that I've translated Brother Lawrence, and of course I've tinkered with it a lot, but I had translated it meaning a hundred times by the end. I love him. The only thing is, as I translate, I tried really hard, but there were just so many references to God, he. I couldn't make God not masculine. I was teaching a summer class. My students had so many different um, issues for the pandemic, and they were so heroic. So all these things were working through my soul, and I'm walking through the marsh with snowy egrets. Something came in me and said, you know what you can do? you could use they, themselves, and theirs as a pronoun for God. Hmm. And I thought, could I? And so I sat down and you don't just do a global search and cut and paste. It, to make a change like that is substantive. It really is like atoms. Atoms are tiny, nobody notices them, but they make a big difference. Like pronouns are tiny. They're really like phytoplankton. Nobody notices them but they're big. And so I sat down and I spent the whole day working on it. And then I thought of a few older people I know who are open-minded, progressive Christians, started out Southern Baptists, now are uh, cooperative Baptists. And I thought I could make this not only have they themselves and theirs for God, but it could be also a primer so I went back and I tried to make it where it was introduced in a way where people learn how to do it and see where it gets tricky is if, for example, you have a sentence where you have God and it goes on a bit and then it says, they love you or something like that, meaning God is they, but it also has a reference to like these things or where it could get confusing and I don't want it to be confusing. So I went back and I made all those changes and then I called up a couple of these people and told them, do you want to know the surprise to the book? I said, because it just came in at the last, because it just didn't sit right. Like you, the way you talk about it, when you said you went back and changed Lord to Holy One. I understand that very much because to me, Lord is halafwerd in Old English. And he's the one who's in charge of everything. Mm. And I think a little word like Lord is a big word. And I was thinking the other day, Amy, you know how we can say you can Lord something over someone and that kind of puts you in a position of power. And I looked it up in the OED. If you ever say you're going to lady something over somebody, it's just like a joke. Like you, nobody ever ladies it over. <laughs> you never say, I'm gonna, you'll Lord that over me your whole life. You'll lady that over. Nobody would take that. Seriously, language really does reveal us when you start really looking under the rug. So I also have some instances where Brother Lawrence refers to God as a father, and I make God a parent. And there are a few other things like that. But I think the main thing that will be a bit of a difference for people will be the they themselves, theirs. And it's interesting because when I was using themselves, Google always wanted me to change it to themselves. 
So God themselves, Google would say themselves. So even the corrector is binary because, you know, right, of course. We, we, right. we humans make the, yeah. So yeah. I'm hoping that people will, I, I, I just think that people who are often excluded, like, like I used to be really good at knowing exactly what I should do to uphold the tradition. And this time my heart has been broken. If I'm gonna be really honest about it, my heart has been broken by things that are either personal or in the world, watching people not being loved. And so for me, this is not just a translation. This is about love and how words really do change how we can actually love each other. This has been a podcast production of the Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to the Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? Visit ChristianCentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.